0: Hello, Daily Lobo listeners, and welcome back to the seventh episode of The How. This week, Daily Lobo freelance reporter Anya Loya and Daily Lobo news editor Lissa Knudsen sit down with three reporters who had stories featured in this week's special edition Women's History Month. First up, Daily Lobo freelance reporter Sarah Budkin Breaks Down Her Story, New Mexico Abortion Ban Repealed. Next up, Daily Lobo freelance reporter Jesus Mata talks about his story, Jennifer King, Breaking Barriers in the NFL. And lastly, Daily Lobo news editor Lissa Knudsen talks about her story, UNM Advocacy Group Fights for Lower Campus Sexual Assault rate.
1: Okay, we are here with Sarah Bodkin, who is a freelance reporter with the Daily Lobo for her front page above the fold story called New Mexico Abortion Ban Repealed. Law comes off the books after more than a half century. Welcome, Sarah, and thank you so much for agreeing to talk about this story. Can you tell us a little bit about like what this story was about? Hi,
2: absolutely. Yeah, so this was basically about uh, New Mexico's 1969 abortion ban, um, being repealed. Um, and, you know, this bill was proposed in 2018 and then it was proposed in 2019. Both of those bills ended up dying. And then now, um, it, you know, it was finally passed. It was finally signed by our governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham. Um, and, uh, Basically, what the bill is doing is it is um, increasing abortion protections for New Mexico um, because there is concern from some people that Roe v. Wade will be overturned uh, by the Supreme Court, which has a bit of a conservative bent as of recently.
3: Nice. And Sarah, why do you think this story is important? Yeah, I think... It's
2: important to raise a dialogue um, for, you know, the New Mexico community, but also the UNM community. You know, because uh, um, there are some folks here at UNM who might be at the age where they uh, end up having unplanned pregnancies, um, and uh, uh, and you know, it's important. I think that uh, people have access to being able to educate themselves um, about where they stand um, and why they, um, you know, why they choose to stand there based on the uh, perspectives that um, I was able to find and the sources I was able to interview and uh, the committee hearings that I attended as well.
1: Yeah, in your story, you were saying, I guess, according to the CDC, that 3,110 new Mexicans had abortions in 2018. So right. that's not a huge number, right? I'm sure for each of those folks that, that you know, having that resource was really important to them. Um, Absolutely. So one of the things I was going to ask you about is it looks like there was some really sort of... Um, surprising arguments that were made in the, you know, as this bill was being, you know, vetted in committee hearings. And I, I see here that you said that Republicans were opposed the bill. Some of them were concerned about the absence of a conscience clause. Can you explain to our listeners what that means and, um, you know, and what you found out in your reporting? Absolutely. Yeah. So what I found with the conscience
2: clause, um, which, was deeply controversial um, in Senate hearings and you know among uh, conversations about this bill, um, but it would basically explicitly ensure that healthcare professionals um, have the right to refuse um, abortion care, to refuse uh, performing abortions. Um, and but it's already protected by the uh, Uniform Health Care Decisions Act. Um, and so, yeah, there were a lot of there, there but that's definitely um, a pretty uh, it's it's a really that's a really interesting part of this bill um, because it's, you know, the bill is not going to force um, health care workers to provide uh, abortion care, according to um, Ellie Rushforth, who I, I was able to interview for um, for this article and then also for um, the last article that I wrote on this issue.
1: Yeah, you in your article. You say Ellie or, or Miss Rutherford was an attorney at the ACLU of New Mexico and and was an expert witness for this for this bill. Um, right. That was it. Was it hard to get these sources? Were they willing to talk, or were they, um, you know, were they kind of hesitant to communicate about the issue?
2: Right. Ellie, uh, in particular, was very open um, and yeah, incredibly, you know, she she was able to lay out all of the information um, that, you know, that I wanted to ask. And yeah, it she was really, um, she was really open about this issue, I think. And I think uh, most of the sources actually um, that I interviewed for this topic, you know, since it's such an it, impassioned topic, since it's um, a topic that has a lot of mo- emotion behind it for a lot of people, you know, there were so many people who were just so open to t- talking about why they feel this bill should or should not be passed um, and, you know, what the
3: reasons are behind it. Yeah, no, definitely. um so I, I had a question about, like, how this bill could affect the community, Um, because as we, as we all know, New Mexico, it's a minority state, and it doesn't have the same employment opportunities as other states, not the same growing opportunities. Um, So I was just thinking, like, if this bill were to be passed, what would it mean for New Mexican families and for New Mexican people who would want to get or not an abortion? Right, right. So, uh, it would
2: mean for a lot of people, um, for a lot of New Mexican families, that they would be able to have the choice um, to or to not have abortion care, whatever their decision may be, um, but not but without that government oversight. Um, and that's something that a lot of people are you know, really, really passionate about, you know, um, the co-founder of Indigenous Women Rising um, w- is really, really passionate about that. Or, and, you know, which you, you guys were able to interview for me. That was um, a perspective that, um, that, you know, editors, I believe you, Lisa, um, were able to um, help me with. Uh, and I really appreciate that. And I think it really added a lot to the story.
1: Great. And the one thing I did want to ask beyond that, like it sounds like um, when we talked to uh, Rachel Lorenzo from Mm -hmm. uh, Indigenous Women Rising, that they were, you know, really active in the efforts to sort of community organize and get people to, you know, testify on this yeah. committee. Do you feel like this effort to get the abortion ban repealed was led by any group in particular? And if so, which groups uh, in New Mexico do you feel like were sort of at the forefront of this issue?
2: That is a really, really interesting question. And you know, from the committee hearings that I went to, um, I noticed that uh, it was definitely a lot of, there were A lot of indigenous groups um who were sort of at the forefront of this issue you know and you know going to those committee hearings and um making personal testimonies and things like that Um, and so yeah i definitely think that um you know and there were definitely a lot of um other you know groups and witnesses and things like that who also um helped that along but i would say definitely um, from a lot of the uh, committee hearings that I went to, that was what I uh, noticed mostly.
1: I think that's it. That sounds um, like a lot. And I'm I'm so impressed that you had the courage to write this. Were you ever like scared at any time in writing this that maybe people would like react badly or how did you uh, feel about it?
2: Yeah, I, you know, it was, um, because it's such an emotional issue for so many people, I knew from the beginning that I had to be careful. Because, um, you know, my job as a journalist, our jobs as journalists are to uh, inform people so that they can sort of um, make their own decisions based on what information I have provided or that we have provided. Um, and so I definitely knew that I had to be careful with, um, what I said and with what, um, you know, how many sources I had and where those sources were coming from. Nice. And did you get any blowback? I have yet to get any blowback. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I will, I, I will certainly, you'll be among the first to know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, and it's a really heavy issue. So, um, so I, I don't, it's not that I don't expect it, but I have yet to experience it. Um, and you know, it, again, it's a really heavy issue for so, so many people. Um, and
1: maybe, maybe the fact that you haven't heard a lot of, um, negative feedback is because you did a good job with it, right? That maybe your coverage was, um what you were aiming for and and it didn't mm-hmm. necessarily you know um exacerbate the situation but tried to as fairly as possible report what was happening. Yes. Thank you so much for your time Anya did you have any other questions before we wanted to go? No that is all so, um I appreciate everything we got. Hey. Well, so now we're going to talk with Jesus Mata. He is a freelance reporter at the Daily Lobo, and he wrote a story about Jennifer King, um, who is the first Black uh, woman to coach football at in the NFL full time. So welcome. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today, Jesus.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Of course. So can you explain to our listeners what this story was about?
0: So essentially what it's about is, um, so first off, I wanted to start with just getting letting everyone know who Jennifer King was, like what her history was, how she got started, and how big of an an achievement this is. And then I also wanted to provide a UNM perspective. So that's essentially how the story went.
1: So who is Jennifer King?
0: So Jennifer King, um, she is just basically the first black woman to become a full uh, time coach in the NFL. And she worked hard to get in the position she's at. And I just think it's a really cool story.
1: What kind of things did she do before this, like, you know, her, her getting this job that made her qualified for the position?
0: Well, she played, um, she was a player. And then for a little bit, for almost a decade, about, about a decade. And then she, pretty much coached a number of winning teams in college. And then she got an internship with the Panthers. And then that's what led her to get the job with the Washington, the Washington football team. And then now she's here.
1: Cool. I didn't even know women could play football. Like she actually played tackle football.
0: Yes, there is a, there back when she was a player, there was a women's tackle football league and she played for the Carolina Phoenix for about 10 years. That's cool,
1: Anya. Did you have any questions? Yeah. Um. Before
3: that, <clears throat> you said there was a female league, like, so there's not anymore.
0: I'm not entirely sure if there's not anymore, but back when she played, that there was.
3: Okay. Okay. Um. So my other question is, like, why do you think this was a sto- an important story to add to this once issue, special issue? Why do you think it was important?
0: Um, I think a story like this is like super important because times are changing and a story like this shows that, uh, women are becoming, are, are getting, are earning these positions and, um, they're qualified to coach in these positions.
1: Awesome. Um, I, I wanted to highlight one of the things that I thought was just amazing about this story is how many, um, like super like cool and qualified and expert sources that you had that are connected to UNM that were willing to weigh in on her, you know, historic, uh, you know, getting of this position. So could you talk to us a little bit about some of your sources? Like I see here, there's a guy named Ned James, a former UNM quarterback and NFL assistant coach. Um, Can you talk to us about him and what it was like to talk to him?
0: No, that conversation was really cool because Um, He is from UNM and he, uh, he knows the, like, I guess how the NFL works. So it was kind of cool to like, kind of just see uh, his experience and talk about what he thinks Jennifer's experience could be like. Um, And the Brandy Stone from UNM actually uh, connected me to him. So I got to thank her for that. And yeah, it was just really cool to talk to him about football and then talk to him about Jennifer and where he see where he sees uh, a hiring like this could go.
1: What did what did he say? Like, was he kind of like hesitant? Like, it was going to be hard, or did he seem to think that the NFL is ready for a, a woman coach?
0: No, he was definitely um, bored on. He was full that that this is like a good thing and that the, the NFL is ready for it. Um, he like he did mention that. I think it, there was a quote in the story, but he did mention that, that uh, her time could be tough depending on what happens, but that this is a good thing and that just times are changing.
1: Yeah, it seemed like in your story, it said something to the effect of like, if she helps them win, she'll keep the job because that's what matters most. It doesn't matter who's doing it, but if they don't win, then she'll lose the job and it'll be a based solely on merit. So that was pretty cool. And yeah, then one of
0: the, that's why he mentioned that it was like, kind of like the the expectations, the organization, uh, it depends on the expectations organization will have.
1: Mm, right. Um, I was going to say, I know that you also had Katie and in there and she's a, a, what, a former UNM kicker. So she's actually played as a woman on the men's football team. Uh, what was it like to interview her?
0: That one was probably my favorite interview of the entire story. Just talking to her and her experience uh, as a woman who played in a male dominant sport was really cool. And just hearing about what she thought about Jennifer's hiring and um, talking about her own experiences with being a woman who did play in a male dominant sport, that was really cool. Awesome. Go ahead.
3: Sorry. Um, so after talking to all these cool sources and like getting a reaction from UNM, do you feel like as a possibility that um, UNM would have their own like female coach for such a dominated male sport or even like other sports?
0: I do definitely because um, when I was talking to Ned James and uh, Katie Hanaida, they were both talking about how it's going to, it could be real soon. It, we don't know when it's going to happen, but it could be real soon that we see a, uh, female coach uh, coaching in a male dominant sport at UNM, and I, I g- agree with them completely. Um, I think there's a lot of coaches, and you have to you have to hire them based off of their skills, uh, out, off of their skill set, and their uh, past experiences with coaching. If they're successful coaches, and I think you just have to look at it in that. Um, I guess you have to look at it in that way, basically. Just don't because- turn away any stone
1: because there's less female football players, how do you think somebody could get the experience that they would need in order to get that kind of a position? Right. Cause I think here at UNM, like we pay our football coach, I want to say like $300,000 in salary. And then like another 300 or so thousand dollars in like other kinds of perks. So they make almost like I think $700,000. So would they just, do you think that for something that's so high stakes, they would hire somebody that didn't have experience teaching other male men, you know, uh, football teams.
0: I think Jennifer's like, as the story kind of like highlighted, I think Jennifer's journey about her, her coaching for different teams, uh, whether they were male or female. um, I think that shows a lot in her experience and her coaching. Um, And I just, I just think you can't, you can't like turn away any, any coach depending on like their experience because a coach could be like really good um, um, at a, at a small college and that could turn out to be great for your team based off of their, um, what they did at that college uh, compared to a coach who may have done like even like average at a big college. I think you just got to, you just got to look at everybody and see who can fit the mold of your team, whether they're male or female.
1: Cool. One last little question before we go. I see that we referred to in the story as the Washington football team as her um, employer. Can you talk a little bit about what that team is and why it's, it's called that?
0: Yeah. So they used to be called the Washington Redskins, but they, as times are changing, um, I believe that they have to, they're getting rid of like the Native American, um, culture and logos from the t- teams, like the Cleveland Indians, um, remove their logo. I don't know if they're going to be even be called the Indians anymore. So we'll have to see what happens when the baseball season starts. But yeah, that's basically how it came about. Um, and they were just, dis- they were going to decide on a team name, um, prior to be calling Being called the Washington football team but they couldn't get one in time so that's how it kind of came about.
1: Kind of reminds me of like Prince you know formerly the artist formerly known as Prince so it's the team formerly known as. Well cool well thanks so much for coming on today we really appreciate you writing this story and answering some of that really interesting background stuff.
3: I'm back with news editor Lisa Knitsen uh, we're here to talk about her latest article, um, UNM Students and Graduates Fight to Lower Campus Sexual Assault Rate.
1: Hey, Alyssa. Hey, so it's kind of cool to be both interviewed and interviewer on this podcast, but I, yeah, I did. I wrote this one article um, oh. about campus sexual assault rates and what's being done, I guess, up in the legislature uh, to try to address that.
3: Yeah, no, definitely. Um, So Lisa, um, what can you tell me what this story is about?
1: So there's a group of um, students. One is from NMSU, Uh, his name is Eccles, his last name. And then one is a student who's currently a UNM psychology student. And then one just graduated, I wanna say in 2019, Emily Wilkes uh, here from UNM. And they're with a group called Every Voice Coalition. And they have been advocating in Santa Fe for a bill that is, um, it's multifaceted, but it's designed designed to reduce campus sexual assaults. That's really
3: interesting. And um, um, can you tell me like, why do you consider the story to be important
1: for our community? Yeah, uh, so we we know that campus sexual assault rates are not only prevalent at UNM and other colleges across the nation, but they're usually underreported. So women and, you know, anyone who experiences sexual assault, assault of any kind, whether it be dating violence or rape or, you know, stalking. Uh, they are not historically feeling like safe enough to be able to re- report those, and then hopefully get some sort of intervention that can prevent them from happening again in the future. Uh, and and we also know that the most recent data that we were able to find was from the Cleary Act report that was released last November, and it was about 2019, so before the pandemic but it said that the, re- the reported cases were going up, that there was like a 21% increase in the number of reported rapes in on-campus housing um, mm-hmm. and that like dating violence had increased from 16 reports to 30, so almost double. Um, and stalking had gone up from 36 to 35 35- to 45. So there was just, we know that the the numbers are rising and it was a really interesting story to sort of figure out, you know, what's being done to try to bring those numbers down.
3: No, definitely. Um, So like going back to what you were saying about uh, the number of cases being unreported, um, in one of your interviews for the article for, um, I believe it was Caitlin Rebecca Hanke, the program specialist at the Women's Resource Center, um, so when you were interviewing her, she said something about seeing, raising, reporting numbers can be alarming, but it's really, it's what we want, um, meaning that like, well, she was saying about how like more people were reporting the assaults, but I'm just wondering, like, they say that's what we want, but as like, I'm thinking, as the number of reports are increasing, wouldn't it also mean like the number of assaults are also increasing? It's, there's usually a correlation there. So like, what do you yeah, get from right? that
1: interview? <laughs> people don't in, uh, report that they've been sexually assaulted unless they've been sexually assaulted. Um, and so I think that what you're picking up on there is is right. I think it's a really complicated thing where on one hand, you know, the administration and the representatives from the university are saying, we're not too alarmed by the numbers going up because we don't see it as indicative of more people being hurt but instead we see it as more people feeling comfortable to report that they've had these bad things happen. Um, And But when I followed up and said, well, how would you know? Like at what point will you think that numbers going up would actually indicate that there are more assaults happening? And they couldn't really answer. Right? They said that this is not only a problem at universities, but also I guess the military is working on this same issue where they've seen increases in their assu- sexual assault um, you know, reports going up. And I guess because of like the Me Too movement nationally and people actually getting some sense of being heard and listened to and believed and having some sort of consequence, there are likely to be more reported cases um, but when I asked Eccles, the, the student from NMSU who's part of Every Voice, he said that yeah. it's probably twofold, that, that, that he, he's not necessarily saying that sexual assault rates are increasing, but that it's regardless if the numbers are, are just becoming evident or they're not, it's a problem that needs to be addressed, right? People are being hurt and um, there's a lot of reasons for that. And we need to be doing more on campus to try to bring those numbers down.
3: Yeah, like either way, like just the fact that it's increasing is really bad, but I'm glad it's like, it's getting acknowledged. Yeah. um, just like I'm really glad that you took on this article on this issue it's really important um for people to be aware um, as a journalist and as a woman I think it was really important for you to take it and just like me as a reader and also as a woman um I'm glad I got to read this article so really
1: yeah good one job of on the. That. One of the things that was sort of like fascinating about this was that there's some new kind of approaches to reducing sexual assault rates that they're they're proposing in the legislation that I don't know has really been commonplace in most colleges across New Mexico before this. And, mm-hmm. and so like one of the things they talked about is that you know how UNM has the gray area, uh, yeah. like sexual misconduct prevention training that all students yeah. have to take. They don't have that at some of the other schools across um, New Mexico. And that is what's called like an affirmative consent training. And so that means that it actually talks about like in the training, why people might say yes when they want to say no and mm-hmm. and i think that that's really powerful because i think that, that that gets out how complicated and hard some of these situations are where maybe you know perpetrators don't even know they're being perpetrators because the person didn't say overtly no no i don't want you to do this you know and yeah. and that that i think is like could be a, a sea change moment right like where things just totally shift and we start to have true understanding so we're not just trying to teach you know victims or people who are survivors to like be safe and carry their keys and like only go out at night in groups and all this stuff. But we're actually bringing in the people who are committing the sexual assaults and saying, hey, you wanna be a good person. You didn't even know that maybe what you were doing wasn't quite right. These are ways that you can actually make sure that you are getting consent and that that consent hasn't been revoked and that people are, everyone who's participating wants to be participating. And this is a mutually, you know, agreeable, you know, activity and not something (laughs) that um, will later cause trauma and harm for anyone. So I just thought that that part of the story was really um, exciting because Mm -hmm. it just seems like a whole new approach than those sort of like old school like legal based online trainings that are like this is the definition of sexual assault or sexual harassment, and it just doesn't feel like it makes a difference, you know?
3: Yeah, actually, I actually have a follow up on that. So, um, you were saying how like uh, UNM had this program, the Great Area. Um, but also, I think I like the beginning of your article. It was mentioned how UNM had like the highest rates of like sexual assault, or like all these um, issues of that nature. So it's like, okay, yes, we have this training, but we also have like the highest numbers.
1: How does that work? Yeah, so, so good point. Um, But what, what um, every voice those folks were saying is that the most of the campus climate surveys that are done across the nation have you know, like if they're not done in a way that's anonymous and safe um, Mm -hmm. and they're only based on reports to police officers, they end up being almost zero. And we know that that's not true. So I think there is something to be said that what UNM is doing here with like the gray area training and having higher numbers is probably indicative of the fact that they're actually scraping the surface and getting more accurate information. And part of that is likely due, and this is what Angela Katana said from the, um, she's the Title IX coordinator here at UNM, is because we had at this school, a department of justice uh, investigation that then um, created what's called a consent decree where the DOJ from you know the feds came in and basically forced UNM to start spending more money and resources on specifically addressing this. So where we were maybe historically very bad compared to our peers, because of that, and some of the things that have happened, we've gotten things like affirmative consent training and we've gotten dedicated, you know, Title IX coordinators and Clery Report coordinators. And, and now people are, are hopefully, the, the culture is starting to shift. So it's complicated, right? In one hand, mm-hmm. UNM has a history of being an extremely unsafe space. On the other hand due to some of this really specific intervention we might be ahead of our peers in um, trying to address what has been like what's called an endemic level of violence and endemic just basically means like that's become normal like every year that Mm -hmm. same rate happens
3: yeah definitely um well well thank you for this um is there anything else that you would like to add
1: No, I mean, it was kind of a hard story to write. I didn't realize that as I was doing all the interviews and stuff that I would have my own sort of like hesitation and almost writer's block when it came to get putting, you know, words on the page, the, some of the interviews I did, I actually did back in November when the Cleary Act report came out. And then it wasn't until the Every Voice Coalition started working on House Bill 142, um, in the legislature that, you know, we ended up sort of reviving some of those, those interview, um, transcripts and, and building it into this story, because in part, it was just, it was like, like it was just hard, you know, cause I wanted to get it right. And I, I knew that the topic was such an important topic um, that, that I, it, you know, it just weighed heavily on me. Yeah. Not
3: only important, like it's really delicate and like, I know not everyone can handle it or like be willing to do it. So I think you did a really great job. Thanks, Anya. Well, um, yeah. Thank you for um, joining us.